not gonna intimidate me. I'm entitled to my opinion. From the galactic controversy. What are you passionate about? What do you want? That's your opinion and your Hello, David. Welcome to Entitled Opinion. What is your most controversial opinion that you are passionate about? Okay, so um, for me, being in real estate, because I think this is kind of what we're going to be talking about a little bit today in real estate, I have a few different ones that I came uh, prepared to talk about. So number one is a lot of people think that when you invest in real estate, that it's passive. But in my opinion, I don't think it's passive at all. I think it's the complete opposite. Because when someone wants to get into real estate, maybe there's someone out there that's brand new and they want they, they think that they want to get into the new shiny you know object of real estate investing where they can put their money in and they just get mailbox money. That's not really true because there's a lot of things that come with real estate investing where you have to manage the property, you have to manage the tenants that are in the property. Um, and it's the total opposite of that. And if you don't manage it, your property and your assets consistently, they're just going to go down in value. They're not going to appreciate in value at all. So um, that's the that's kind of the one controversial opinion that I wanted to, I guess, bring to you guys today. Maybe we can kind of dive into that a little bit more. Um, yeah, why is it controversial for you to have that opinion? Why is it controversial? Um, I mean, I think because a lot of people think that that real estate investing is just like passive, where really it's the complete opposite. I don't think it's passive at all. So the controversial opinion there is where I think it's not passive, while some other people think it is. And is that, is that because that's how it's, it's been sold, like either on social media or from other, perhaps even salespeople that like, hey, this is just something you put your money in and you let it ride? I think so. Like a lot of people that get into real estate, they don't really like look into the the numbers behind it, right? They like They look at the property, what it's worth, and maybe what they can get for rent. But they don't think of all the different expenses that come with real estate on the day-to-day aspect of it. Things come up depending on, especially depending on the the properties that you buy, whether you're buying properties maybe before 1980s or 1990 bills that are a little bit older that have a little bit more wear and tear. You got to expect some expenses that occur regularly on a monthly basis. There's also exp- expenses that come where if you, you know, if a tenant leaves the property, there's vacancy expenses where you're not getting that rent. Um, and at the same time, you still got to pay your mortgage. You still got to pay your utility bills and you got to still pay your general expenses. So sometimes you can be in the red on a month. Um, but if you look at it at it at a long term, if it's still, you know, positive cash flow, then that's good for me. But for maybe professionals that are in engineering or, uh, you know, medical fields, that don't really know too much behind the, the scenes of real estate. Um, it's not passive at all. I think the only way that you can get to that passive level if you is if you're a limited partner in a partnership mm-hmm. where you have the general partner that's doing a lot of the day-to-day aspects of managing that the property, the asset, or putting the deal together. And then the limited partner, their they're really only value that they're bringing is, is their, their capital that they want to put to work. So in that case scenario, it is passive. But if you're the general partner and you're actually managing the asset, it's it's the complete opposite. Yeah, most of the time, if you want to make it passive, that means someone's got to do the work, which means you're going to make less money if you want a property manager or whatever it is. Right. Yeah, and that's what people think when they invest in real estate, they want to make a lot of money. And where you make the money is when you're actively managing those assets. 
Yeah, I think a lot of it possibly comes from the perspective of renters. If I've been renting in a place and I feel like so much of my money is going towards this landlord that is not as responsive as I would like and doesn't keep the place up to as nice of a condition as I would like, it's like, where is all this money going? They they just must be keeping it for themselves, these greedy bastards. Mm. But as me working in property management and as you yourself are a real estate investor, David, you know how much goes into keeping a property up. Yeah, there's a lot of different things. And, and even even for the fact that like, let's say you go a couple of months where there isn't expenses that come up where you have to, uh, you know, take out of your operating expenses to pay it. That's good. But at the same time, just because you maybe make a little bit extra that month or that quarter doesn't mean that you should give that all away to maybe the investors that are in the deal is sometimes it's important to keep percentage of that on a monthly basis for that rainy day for those big ticket expenses that may come up, you know, a year, two years from now, because the thing with real estate is, you can be you can you can buy a property for let's say 200 grand and you make let's say 12 grand over the course of 3 years in cash flow but then on the third year you get hit with an expense of replacing the roof which is 12 grand so over 3 years there's really nothing right that that's that says for it but there's there's other there's other things that come with real estate investing that is more than just cash flow right you have like you're paying your loan off every single month the property is going in up in value. There's tax advantages as well, and then there's cash flow. So there's really four different ways that you can make money in real estate. Cash flow is just one of the, one of the four. Cash flow is really just the way of how it can sort of pay for itself, hopefully, while the other means are ways of getting you more value. Exactly, and for me, like I always want to buy something that cash flows day one. But then there's also some sort of value add that can bring to it. So the value add can be a lot of different things. You can have value add where you're going in there and you're renovating the units and making them nicer, where you can get more for rent from it. Because at the end of the day, it's how much rent you can bring in and how much you can lower your expenses. But at the same time, there could be value add where maybe your expenses are a little bit higher and there's ways that you can cut that down to, in at the end of the day, you, you know, have more profit. So I always look to buy properties that are cash flowing day one, but at the same time, I want to buy something where I can add a little bit of value to it. Um, where some people, they might only want, they might only have a lot of money and they just want to buy something that's turnkey. That's not really how I like to invest, but you know, you, you also gotta, you gotta find your correct avatar because there are avatars out there where they just want to buy turnkey investments that they're okay with holding forever. They don't really have to do much to it. But then there's other investors that want to, you know, maybe increase their wealth a little bit quicker. And by doing that, I think the only way to do that, do it is to have and buy properties that have some sort of, you know, skin on the bone. How do yeah. you balance your cash flows with long, longer term investments in real estate? So for me, it's not too hard right now, just because I don't have like a massive portfolio. You know, I only have a few properties, but what has been really helpful is um, having like separate bank accounts. So like for, for example, I have a prop, the, I have a, an apartment complex that I have just one operating bank account for that apartment complex. And I have spreadsheets all set up in place that I set up day one and just being able to go in there on a monthly basis to itemize every single um, expense that occurs from the mortgage to the trash collection, to the utilities, 
there's just so many different little nuances or, or maybe I have to repair something that month or pay for labor or whatever that case, case may be. Being able to go in there on a monthly basis and track it so that at the end of every single month and every single quarter, I can see, okay, this is the income that the property produced. This is the expenses that the property produced. This is the difference in cash flow. From that difference in cash flow, I'm going to take a percentage of that, put it away, save it for a rainy day. And then the other percentage of it, I'm going to distribute that to, to my partners on a quarterly basis. So I think that all makes sense. I was more asking when you're looking for investment opportunities, how do you balance the like the return on equity versus cash flow? So you said you want to find a place that's cash flowing on day one, but how do you balance like the, do I want a really big cash flow and a little return on equity investment? Or do I want low cash flow and really high return on my investment in like say five or 10 years from an equity yeah, perspective? So I, yeah. So I always look at it as, I don't look at it as like a three to five year type type of thing. Like I always know that real estate's generally going to go up in value over the course of three, five, 10 years. Anything that I buy, I want to know in my head that I'd be okay with holding this for the next 20, 25, 30 years, theoretically. But when I buy it in terms of like a percentage or cash on cash return, I typically like to get a 10% cash on cash return once I do my value add. But that doesn't mean that when I buy it day one, the cash to cash return might only be 5% or 6%. But if I know that I can increase the rent or decrease the expenses to get to that 10% cash on cash return, I know that it's going to be a good investment for me. So Gotcha. So in your cash on cash returns, when you say value add, does that include the increase in equity that you get out of it? No, it does not include the increase. So, no, so you want you want 10, 10% cash on cash value add or cash on cash return just from increasing rents, decreasing costs. And then the return on equity is just on top of that, is on top of the 10%. Yeah, because you know it's kind of hard to calculate what the return on equity is going to be because no one really knows what the market's going to do in the next one, two, three, four, five years. So I don't think that's like a sound uh, way to go about investing. I want to be, I want to take calculated risk. So I need to know that if I do get into an investment and my interest rates locked in at a good rate and it's good for the next 10 years, let's say that I'm safe for that, that time period. And we can break down my deal. For example, I bought it in, 2022, but I locked in a really good rate. Our rate is 4.3%, but that's good until 2029. But for the next seven years, we're paying down a lot of, um, of principal. So in 2029, when I go back, we're going to owe X, but I know that the property is going to be at least worth what I bought for it, if not more. And I can always go and there's multiple extra strategies that I can do at that point. I can sell it and take that money and put it into something else and just snowball effect there. Or I can go back to the bank and say, hey, I wanna do a cash out refi. I wanna pull all my money out that I had in this, pay everyone off and, and it's all tax-free because it's still a loan, right? And then you could take that money, put it into something else and then you can just continue to hold the property you know, for, for a while as well. So I don't, to answer your question, no, I don't, I don't really, when I do my calculations, I don't plan for X percent of depreciation on a year over year basis. That's just more of like, um, you know, sprinkles on the cake at the end of the day. I, I mainly look for what the property is producing day one and then what I can do in terms of sweat equity to increase the, the value of the property. 
Gotcha. So you said it's hard for anybody to know what's going to happen amongst any time frame, but do you have any idea or feelings as to what 2024 is going to look like and you know what kind of challenges you might be facing in the next year? Yeah. So, I mean, you, you kind of hear things from Fed, how they're going to decrease rates in 2024. I don't know if you guys have heard that. I think they said they're going to decrease them like at least three times. Yeah, I've heard so, a little bit because uh, inflation sort of peaked. Inflation yeah. rates are decreasing now. So I guess the logical next step is to decrease rates also. Right. So I think rates were at like 8% uh, a couple months ago. And now they were, I think they're like mid to high sixes or so. And I think they might have some room to go down a little bit more. So when I see stuff like that, um, it gets me excited because that means when the rates are a little bit lower, more buyers are just going to organically come back to the market, which in turn is just going to naturally grow, um, you know, your asset, you're, you're going to be able to get more for your dollar. So the prices are going to go up. So for me, I think 2024 is going to be a huge year for real estate investors that either want to buy and hold, or maybe that want to sell some of their assets. I think it's going to be good for buy and hold investors because if you can get in and lock yourself at a good rate, this year, you can hold it for a while. Or um, if the rates go down, more buyers are going to come. You might be able to get more for your property um, this year as well. But also, you know, it is election year. Election year, there, there could be so many different things that go on. So there's that as well. So I think you got to have to balance a lot of different things. But for me personally, I'm, I'm trying to uh, to definitely buy a few deals this year for sure. Oh, nice. What are you looking for? Yeah, so... I'm kind of changing my strategy a little bit. Um, so over the last couple of years from like 20 till I was from 22 to, to now, I've really been trying to just find like buy and hold investments. But um, I recently sold my duplex that I was living in for two years and that went up in, in value a decent amount. So I have some cash that I'm looking to deploy in more so uh, quick transactional aspects. And there's a few reasons why I'm doing that. So, so to answer your question, I'm looking for properties that I can flip, right? Where I can go in, buy it, put a little bit of money into it, sell it, make a profit, and then put that in the next one. Um, the reason why I want to do that this year is I because I'm still young and I really want to learn construction as much as I can over the next couple of years. Because I think that's, that's a really, really good skill to have for, um, for the future, my future investing, investing self. When I have maybe more units where I have to go and turn some units and I have to know and manage contractors, construction, construction costs, all that. So my goal this year is to buy four flips um, where I can go in, get it at a good price, put X dollars into it, sell it, and then make a little bit of profit and you know roll that into the next one. So that's kind of that's kind of what uh, what I'm looking for this year in terms of investments. Are you anticipating on doing much of that work yourself? Uh, I'm anticipating doing none of it myself. Uh, I'm going to, I have a contractor that I've worked with a little bit in the past and he, he's kind of like a general contractor where I can just pay him to um, uh, just give me a bid for the entire, for everything that I want. And he can, you know, hire the the window person, he can hire the floor person, the kitchen people or whatever. I might pay a little bit more, but it helps me being, you know, uh, someone who has a, a full-time job already I can't be on the project site every single day, do, you know, doing the work myself. I'd rather 
speed where I can finish a project in two to three months and then move on to the next one. And the value that I'm bringing is I'm finding the deals. I'm going to negotiate the deals. I'm running all the numbers, making sure that it makes sense for me as an investment. And then I'll, of course, I'll go over there a couple of times a week, you know, on the weekends, whatever, making sure that progress is being made. But at the end of the day, um, I'm not going to be swinging the hammer or anything like that. But I do want to go over there. I want to understand like the cost really like, hey, what does it cost to, to turn this kitchen? What does it cost to put this floor down to do this drywall? Um, and then just being over there on a regular basis, like maybe after work or whatever, managing how, how long everything takes, asking them questions and stuff like that. But I won't be doing any of the work myself. So a couple of questions. Are you going to, it's a 1031 exchange, right? When you get the, is that, is that the exchange? No, the- no I wouldn't be doing a 1031. Um, are you saying from the property that I recently- From your sold? duplex. No, so that one wasn't, because uh, I lived in it for uh, for two years. So when I sold it, um, I didn't have to pay any taxes on my side. I think I might have to pay some taxes on the other side because it was an investment. But from all the other real estate that I have, I kind of minimized that tax bill a little bit. So pretty much a lot of the profit that I made from that is there's not really too much tax I have to pay. So I have a lot of cash where I can just deploy on my own. And then and then from those profits, though, of those flips, there's going to be tax at the end of the year. But I'm hoping where I can maybe do a couple flips, buy property, whatever, to offset that tax bill by the end of the year. Are, are Is this getting financed at all? Well, uh if I can find the right, I mean, it depends the deal. Um, I would personally like to just do it all cash where um, I can go in, buy something for, you know, cause I'm in, I'm in Cleveland, right? So I'm in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm not in, I think you're in Florida. So the, the market here is a little bit more affordable than some other markets in the U S but here you can buy a property for a hundred thousand, 120, you could buy properties for 20,000, but properties I'm looking <laughs> for is where I can go in and buy something for like a hundred K 120 K put, you know, maybe 50,000 into it and then sell it for X and make 10% on, on my money. Right. So I'm not looking for like a major returns, but more so where I can just do quick and easy, but also I I have relationships with uh, what they call hard money lenders or, you know, short-term lenders where um, they would be able to finance the, the, the flip and they would be able to finance the rehab as well, where I put a lot more, less of my money down but they, you know, they have fees and everything like that. And for me, I'm not going to have three, four, five projects going on at one time as I'm starting. I'm probably just going to have one. I'm going to see that full cycle. And then once that's done, I'm going to go to the next one and the next one. But as I get more experience and I understand the numbers a little bit more, then I might have more. And if that was the case, then I'm probably going to have to leverage hard money lenders. But for the first couple of deals, I'll probably, I'm going to try to just do it all cash. Cool. That's awesome. I mean, because that gives you time in case there's any mistakes or not not even on your part but like what if all of a sudden you need a new plumbing uh like redo and and you get pushed back a month or two and if you have a hard money loan those those can kick in pretty hard yeah you, you get your paying like 12 percent interest on your money and they yeah. have ease in place so you're i mean they got to make money too i get it but um the amount of money that i save from not going with hard money lender is just more money that I can make at the end of, of the, of the project. Nice. Have you, so you, you haven't gotten any fix and flips yet. You're, you're hunting. I'm hunting right now. I'm, I'm actively looking for a deal. So 
if anyone watching this, if they have any deals in Northeast Ohio that are distressed, I mean, let me know. I, I can buy cash close quick, but yeah, it's, it's a process, man. It's hard to find stuff. Um, a lot of the stuff that I'm doing right now is just on market. Um, I know the, the best deals are when you go off market, but you know, you need marketing budgets and all that kind of stuff for that. And I, I think that I can find something on market if I just stick with it and, and continue to build relationships with, with real, local realtors. Uh, but yeah, I'm just in the hunting phase right now of trying to find properties. Have um, you- I have a little bit of experience with, you know, doing rehabs and stuff on some of the units that I have now, but um, in terms of a full on fix and flip from start to finish, yeah, this would be, this would be something new for me, but I'm excited. Have you, so you've walked through some homes, some distressed properties? Yeah, I made I made multiple offers. I made probably just this month. Uh, I probably made like four offers. But wow. um, I Dang, mean, how that, much time does it take for you to go out and look at the properties and calculate how much you're willing to put into it and make an offer? So, of those four offers, I probably only walked two of. I think I only walked like two of them because I can't walk. Every, it doesn't make any like if I'm if they're here and I need to be here. It doesn't, I don't want to waste their time. I don't want to waste my time going to walk the property. Um, I can pretty much comp a property, understand the overall what the rehab is going to be um, in like 15, 20 minutes. I mean, it's really not that hard. Um, but what I would, what I usually do with my offers is I'll say, Hey, I'm going to be at this number, but I want a, a few days contingency in our contract where I can get my contractor out there to do a walkthrough to give me a clear estimate of what the bid looks like um, just to kind of refine my numbers before we move on to the closing table. So that's what I've been doing. Um, there was one where I walked a property with my contractor before because they wanted no contingency. So I was like, okay, we need to get an idea of what this cost is going to be. And that really helped me because now I kind of know like what his costs look like for a specific house. And I can kind of take that to other ones when I'm running my numbers. Um, but for that one, yeah, I offered, I think I offered 137.5 and they accepted one the other day for like 150. So I was a little bit off there, but I'm I'm being a little conservative. Maybe I have to maybe I have to switch it up a little bit here in the next couple of weeks to be a little bit more aggressive in my offers just to get into something. But um, I just want to really make sure that I have enough, uh, you know, skin on the bone. And that one that you did 137 offer, was that a single family home? How many bedrooms what was the square footage? What did it look like? Yeah, it was a three, one, uh, single family. They had a listed for like 170. Um, it was probably 13, 1400 square foot. Uh, this one was a little bit of a unique property just because a lot of the work was kind of done. Um, beforehand it was owned by some large private equity firm and they've held it for a while. They've been paying contractors. The contractors that they hired were really bad. They didn't really do a good job of fixing everything up, but it still needed about $40,000 worth of work. Hmm. And after repair value was like 220, 225 maybe. So if I went at, at 170, put 40 into it, you know, I'd be on for 210. If I sold it for 220, you know, you got closing costs, realtor costs, all yeah. that. It just didn't make sense. So that's, I kind of, I took that number, I minus all my expenses, I minus what I wanted to make in profit. And uh, that's that's how I got the 137.5 number. But um, it was just a general cookie cutter house. I mean, two, I mean, it was it was nice, but it needed a little bit more work. So are you up against other people doing the same thing? Or are you, are these actually people that want to move into the house and live in it? 
Do you have any uh, visibility to that? Yeah, I mean, typically it's the properties that I'm looking at are more so I'm competing with other investors um, because they need a little bit of work. And and what I've noticed is that first time home buyers or people who want to buy and live in the property, like they don't want to go in and spend 40 grand, 30 grand, 50 grand to fix it up just to make it livable. Right. Um, so majority of the time I'm competing with, with other contractors. And I think uh, maybe how that other person was able to pay a little bit more is maybe they have a better relationship with their contractors. Number one, number two, maybe they are the ones going in and doing the work themselves versus me where I'm kind of outsourcing that where I'm gonna have to pay a little bit more money for their time as well. So that difference in $10,000 could be the difference that I'm paying my contractor just to do the work versus someone who's going to go in and do it themselves. Well, and they could also be a buy and hold if they've ran the numbers and renting it out makes sense. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if it was someone who was living in it, um, then that could be different too. But, but usually um, the people who are living in it won't buy it all in cash. They'll typically come in with a loan. So if you have someone with an offer of 160,000, but there's contingencies and there's loans and all this, if they're going with like FHA or something, that's, you got the inspection, you got to have all this other stuff yeah, done. And, versus someone who's cash close quick. Sometimes people will be okay with paying a little bit less or, or getting a little bit less for their property if they know that it's actually going to go through. So what do you think are going to be, uh, what's the situation with housing prices this year? Do you think things are going to be relatively stable? So going back to my first point, sorry, going back to my first point, I think, um, I think it's going to go, I think prices are going to go up a little bit this year, just because rates are going to go down. I don't think it's going to be very big difference, like up or down. I think it's going to be pretty gradual. Um, but if I, if I had to make my early estimate, I think, I think you're going to see a little bit of an increase in value, um, in 2024. I took a look at the graph that, uh, that you sent Hunter uh, the other yep. day. I think that was definitely interesting. We could talk about that a little bit. Um, but in terms of 2024, I think I think it's going to be the same, or if not, a little bit, a little bit higher. Yeah, I, th I think I, I tend to agree with you. So I mean, just so the listeners understand, we have a, a graph of the average selling price of, the, of U.S. households from 1963 to now, and then the price, the average selling price peaked in uh, Q4 of 22 at $550,000. So that's the average selling price of homes and, and Q4 of 22. It dipped a little bit in 23 and we're sitting at about $513,000 per household. Um, and then there's other other aspects. There's what we call CAGRs, compound annual growth rates. So we have two year, five year, 10 year, and all the two year, five year and 10 year are all positive. So that means on average for the last 10 years, uh, the the average selling price of houses have grown about 5% on average year over year. So from 20, 2014 to now, the average increase in price has been about 5%. And we're still sitting around that 10-year CAGR of like 5% year over year price growth. And so I think it's only reasonable to say that the prices are going to continue to grow around that rate. So I'd say probably the average selling price of the U.S. house in 24 is going to end around 550000 Yeah, if you look at the average, I mean, so... so that's up I, about 30 k Yeah, yeah, I think that's reasonable. I mean, I think in the general scheme of things, if you look at it for the next 
10, 15, 20, 30 years, on average, 5% is is definitely um, reasonable, in my opinion. And that actually might be a little bit on the low end. It might be a little bit higher than that. Um, yeah, I think based, so too. And then I mean, the data too. yeah, especially if the rates are going to go down, the, the loan rates, mortgage rates are going to go down. I think that's going to push the average growth rate of the housing prices up a little bit. And if we're looking at from the beginning of time when we started to measure, to have this metric on average selling price of the U.S. households, on average, the housing prices have increased by about 5.5% since 1960. So this is like one of the most stable investments that you can make is real estate. No surprise there. I, I was looking at um, some of the updated data from, because that was from the FRED, right? The, uh, the Federal Reserve Economic something. Um and yep. I, th- yep, I think right. I think I think they may have just released some newer numbers. Uh, I was also looking at the median as opposed to the average, and the median was quite significantly lower. I think it was something like four hundred and twenty thousand, but that's still a lot for someone who might want to just be buying a home for himself. If, if prices go up and up, um, it's better to get in earlier. What I thought was interesting too was, and I don't know if it like. Um, calculated this as well into the graph that you shared hunter but i think when it was starting the average price of a home was like what 20 grand or something like that in 1960 yep but if you Amazing. if you look at inflation of the of the us dollar of the course of the last 40 years what was 20 grand worth today in us dollars you know what i mean like that that might that 20 grand might have been worth 200,000 so if you really think of it that way houses 200,000 today is kind of like the same, you know? Well, I, so I, I just Googled it. $1 and 63 is about $10 today. So back so then the average house is, it was, if it was 20 grand, then today it's about uh, 200 grand inflation adjusted. And today it's about two and a half times that. So it's exceeded inflation by about two and a half times. Yeah. Right. Is, is inflation like two to 3%? On Yeah. On good years. Recently, it's been a lot higher. Well, yeah. On average, yeah. On average, I say I think the Fed likes to keep it below three percent. So, so compared to inflation, you're still you're still making money. Inflation adjusted dollars, you're still making money on real estate. Yeah, I mean, I'm a huge component of real estate. Like people are out there that want to go all in on crypto or the stock market and all that. I think it's good to have some money in there as well, just to kind of diversify a little bit. But at the end of the day, I'm always going to be more leveraged in real estate because it's a real asset. There's like only so much land in the in the world that you can have property on, and um, I don't see it going anywhere. Everyone's always going to have a, need to have a place to live, no matter what. Um, so you're so you're a proponent of the population expanding. You expect the population to expand and not well, contract. I, I don't know if we're doing a great job of that right now, but um, David, you need to start having kids. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, yeah. So that's a whole other discussion that we have. But uh, yeah, I mean, well, who's, I'm, I'm, well, I mean, who who buys the houses if the pop, if the population is shrinking? Why would real estate become more be scarce. become more scarce? Is, yeah, I mean, is it though? I, I need to look a little bit more into if if I the think pop- you. I mean, I don't want to dive into this, but I think U.S. is is still one of the higher Western has one of the higher uh, birth rates in Western countries or population growth rather, and that's really subsidized by immigration. So, I mean, the birth rates in the U.S. are pretty low, but they're above replacement birth rates. 
but almost all of the other Western and developed nations have birth rates lower than the replacement rate. And so all of the industrializing nations have much higher birth rates, but then it's those nations that are immigrating to the U.S. that's that's driving our population growth for the most part. And driving demand for real estate. And therefore, I, we're assuming that's going to drive demand for real estate. So, I mean, I don't, I don't think there's any there's much risk in investing in real estate because I think there's other factors too. I think like you said that you just looked at a distressed property that was owned by a private equity firm. I think that's becoming more prevalent. I think there's more private equity folks that are getting into like residential real estate. And so I think that's a whole other factor that's driving prices up and it's not necessarily tied to population growth. And I think that's, that's probably a systemic problem in my opinion that we should probably put a check on because if that's driving up the prices of homes and people can't afford them because of the private equities, equity firms buying them, then maybe think, maybe that's a problem we should address in the future. There might be a fair amount of confusion on that point because I've seen on social media a lot of quick little videos that say that private equity firms bought up 40% of real estate or something like that. Well, it's all from the RFK, right? Robert Kennedy? The guy, I, uh, the independent president running, one of his things was like the three big private equity firms or BlackRock and whatever, whatever the other two are called are getting into the business of buying these residential homes because it's, they're running the numbers and it's profitable for them to diversify their portfolio by doing this. Uh, it, you go, that, you can go down very, the rabbit hole. <laughs> that very well is his point. Uh, but I was just going to contend that there has been a lot of noise in social media about this, like especially 40% number of right, like how much private equity firms are buying up and that it's going to result in this like dystopian future where they own all the homes kind of a thing. Delahunty and, LLC owns 40% of <laughs> Cleveland real estate. <laughs> and no, that, is a, that is a serious problem though, because if a lot of these private equity companies just eat up all the different, you know, properties that are for sale in certain areas, then they're never, they're probably never going to sell. They're, they're just, cause they have so much money that they have to invest. They don't know what to do with it. So naturally, I mean, real estate is a great avenue for them to invest some of that money. But if you, if they're investing in specific areas that they might see are very, you know, there's going to be a lot of growth there. It really hurts the general, you know, day-to-day -day people that are trying to afford some of these houses because, maybe these private equity firms will buy them all up, but they don't want to sell them. They just want to rent them. So that in turn for real estate investors is, is a benefit, but it's also not, it's a benefit because the rent prices are just going to go up because it's going to be harder, harder for the normal people to afford homes. So you're going to see that rental, rental economy going up as well in the next couple of years, if all these different private equity firms are going and buying all these, these homes up making it harder for them to afford. Right. It. So it's good if you can buy a house because once you're in the barrier to entry is higher and the earlier you can get in, the more you can profit because if you think the prices are going to shoot up because the private equity firms are buying everything up, then you want to get in now to see that growth, to capture the the growth in equity. Exactly. And you have options then. Then you have options to either sell and take your money off the table, or you can just hold it and just increase your rent to the, the renting nation. I brought up the point because I believe based off of the very limited research that I did that that narrative that the private equity firms are buying up everything and then like 20% over market value. And that's what's inflated prices a lot. Uh, based off the few different articles that I was looking into, that's grossly incorrect. Now, that doesn't mean that couldn't happen. 
but they've only bought up something like 2% of, uh, they were part of like 2%, I think, of sales. And that might have been fairly restricted to urban environments, um, urban real estate. I don't, especially at least where I'm staying in a relatively small city, there isn't that much interest from private equity firms and single family homes. But I, I, I wouldn't want to wait. I, again, I think people should be getting into real estate ownership as soon as possible because it, it, it's going to be prohibitively expensive the more time goes on. Yeah. So we also had in the topics list that you weren't able to access, David, was a link to a YouTube video that you released at the end of 22. And the title of this YouTube video was something big is about to happen to the housing market. 2023 prediction. And that was in December 2022. Yeah, December 22. Do you recall what that prediction was? No, I need to go back. <laughs> I've, been, I've been out of that YouTube game for for a while now. So it's you erased it from your memory, so you have to re-upload? I, I think the synopsis was because the interest rates have been going up and various other factors, mortgage rates were going to go up, and then that was going to stall out the market and it was going to see a big drop. But it's... It stayed pretty consistent. So I mean, I would say it stayed consistent, but it was definitely, it was definitely slow last year, in my opinion. I, I think, I think the transactions were pretty much the same, but they, you, you didn't see like a growth in twenty three. I it think, kind of no, David, I think, I think you were spot on. So I'm looking at the average selling price across the U S. We peaked at in Q four of twenty two, at five hundred fifty thousand, and then Q one of twenty three, it dipped down to five hundred k. And then it was about 500K again in Q2. And then Q3 was about 513. So, I mean, if that was your your uh, prediction, I think you were spot on. It didn't crash, mm-hmm. but it didn't it actually, the average selling price decreased by about 10% in 23. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's the thing too. That's an important note is like, no matter the year, whether it's the great, the greatest real estate year ever and rates are super low, people are buying everything like that or if it's the worst and the rates are really high, no matter, no matter what people are still going to transact real estate every year. And like consistently, there's always going to be real estate transactions. Like this year, for example, I sold my house rates were kind of high, but I got an offer in like a week of it being on the market, you know, and that, that just goes to show that there's always some people out there looking for, for a home and you never know what, what their situation is going to be. So, uh, whether rates go up, rates go down, the market's up, the market's down, there's always going to be transactions done in real estate every single month, every single day, every single year. But we're saying that in 24, prices are going to increase. So the prediction of 22 was, or of 23 in 22, was that prices are probably going to stall out. They may even decrease a little bit. We're saying the prediction of 24 is they're going to increase over 23. I would I would agree. Like go, From 22 going into 23... I was a little little scared of the market, and I think a lot of people were too. But from tw- for, it's it's kind of a weird thing. Like from twenty three to twenty four, I think it's gonna it's kind of the opposite. I think it's like really really good time to buy real estate. Um, I don't know if that has something to do with because I've only been in the real estate game for a little bit, so I don't have as much experience as maybe some other people that have experienced the big downturns, experienced big upturns. Um, but for me personally, from what I've been seeing, I think that we are going to see a little bit of an upturn just because the rates are going to drop down a little bit. More buyers are going to come to the market and uh, and it should be fun. I'm excited. 
what's going to happen. Hopefully our predictions are right again. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. So, so you guys, so do you guys agree with that as well then? I mean, I'm, I'm not in the real estate game. I'm in the real estate game as much as you are in the apartment complex. But I mean, I'm looking at the data and I, and with the inflation rates at where they're at and the uh, mortgage rates where they're at today, I think we're going to see a modest increase in 24 over 23. I think on average five to 10%. Yeah, and I, I, I actually agree as well from a different angle. So over the past year, I've been speaking with more institutional investors, people that have a lot of money who've really been in the game. And they all think that the market, like they're all holding on cash on hand, waiting for the market to take like a significant dip and then to jump onto opportunities. Uh, and because I was hearing this from so many uh, big cats, I, it seemed to me that there's a lot of money in reserve that's ready to be able to take advantage of opportunities. That means that anytime that there is a dip in price or there would be a dip in price, there's going to be someone there to snatch it up. And so I think because people are expecting or some of the, some of the bigger guys are expecting a big drop. I don't think there actually will be because usually a big drop is uh, precipitated by an unexpected event or some kind of a catalyst. So we had big drop around uh, COVID, but that was not a huge drop, but like somewhat of a drop, but then it came right back up. Um, I think part of the expectation or the anticipation is, is going to prevent that from happening. But something else that to keep in mind is that a lot of investors have commercial loans and commercial loans are usually uh, renegotiated every five years. And so, uh, it's not like a home mortgage with rates being higher and, you know, 2020 sort of like being the beginning of COVID. And, and now we're getting to be about five years later, more and more commercial loans are going to have higher and higher rates. So there may be more and more uh, big owners, big investors who are looking to offload some of uh, their their stock, um, yeah. some of what they own. So that could that could bring prices down if that happened all at once. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, a lot of those big apartment investors, like, so for me, I have a commercial loan on one of my properties. It has a balloon payment after seven years. Um, but I was lucky enough to get it at a good time where I had a good interest rate. But there's a lot of those big apartment investors that set it up where they're only paying maybe interest only payments for the first 24, 36 months. So if they bought something in 2020, and they have interest only payments for you know the first couple of years, then they have to do something with the property, right? They have to either sell it or they have to refinance it into you know longer term debt at the current market interest rate. And they might not have anticipated the interest rates to be where they're at today. Yeah. And that could totally ruin the deal. So they would have to maybe even take a loss and move on to the next one, which just opens up more opportunities for investors that have locked in their rates for X period of time with certain blue payments um, where they can go in and get it at a good deal um, and run the numbers with today's current current rates that, that we have. If an opportunity like that presented yourself, presented itself to you, David, would you be prepared to take it? So if somebody wanted to offload a property, they had a 36 month uh, interest only payment and they purchased it in 20 beginning or into 21. And now they got to do something with that property. Do you think they're going to make money off that? 
or is that going to be a deal because they want to offload it as soon as possible because they want to take on the interest rate of whatever 7% versus a two and a half percent or whatever it might've been. Yeah. I mean, every investor is different. I mean, obviously investors don't want to lose money, but um, at the same time, if they, you know, they could look at it in a fact where if they were to hold it at the current rate, it's just, they're going to lose more money than if they were just to sell it right now, cut their losses, pay their investors back. Um, So there's that for me, if I'm, if I would be able to take something like that on, Obviously, it depends on the price. I mean, I think my biggest uh, disadvantage right now is um, access to capital. I mean, I, sure, you, I have some money, but it's like if you're going into these apartments, like you need hundreds of th- hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe to, just to get into the deal. So um, where maybe there's other investors out there that have more access to individuals who, uh, who have money so that they can take on that deal. But for me, that's something that, I need to, I think I need to do a better job of networking with individuals who would be willing to invest in these different types of deals with me so that if that opportunity did present itself, then I can take advantage of it. Yeah, that makes sense. As always, uh, access to capital is always the issue for most people, I'd say. Maybe not the private equity firms. So we're coming at the, coming up to the end of the episode. I know you said you got to go soon. Uh, we want to end it with uh, what question would you like to ask our audience? Hmm. I would say uh, I'm curious for the audience that's listening if they believe, uh, I guess this can kind of be another controversial opinion as well, but what their thoughts on leverage is in real estate investing. Do they believe that uh, using leverage is good or should they only buy investment properties that they can purchase with maybe cash or um with certain equities that they need to have, whether it's 50% equity in the deal or more. Uh, Curious to hear your thoughts on that. Because me, for myself, I'm a huge component of utilizing leverage. Um, And I'm okay with being a little bit over leveraged if I know that the deal makes sense. But I know that there's some people out there who are a little bit not as risk adverse. So I'm curious to hear, maybe the audience listening, are they more risk adverse to take on more leverage for for real estate investments or um or not i like it i think uh, it's probably a mix of folks that have different opinions on that so we'll, we'll put that on the spotify episode i appreciate it david thanks for coming on again i think this is uh episode three with the david delahunty no problem thanks for having me hopefully the next time we talk i'll uh i'll have done a few flips full cycle and uh we can kind of dive in on, on my experience with that i think that would be a good episode to, to have Agreed. We'll definitely have you back on then. Absolutely. All right, friends, let's show up for David and answer his question. How do you feel about using leveraging and financing to acquire investment property? Is it better to just buy it all cash? If you're listening on Spotify, scroll down. You can answer the question below. But if you're listening elsewhere, we still want to hear from you. We love your entitled opinions. We love all that feedback. Email us. Our email is entitledopinionpodcast at gmail.com. We also have an Instagram, entitledopinionpod is our tag. And then we have a website, entitledopinion.com. Entitledopinion.com is our website. And guess what? I have some more questions for you if you are involved in the real estate game. What are your predictions for the real estate market in 2024 and moving forward? Should we keep cash on hand or should we buy any opportunities that we get? 
I'm curious to know. And guess what? I'll answer you. So go ahead. Call me up. I'm available. Until next time.